0: This is Notoriously Episcopalian. My name is Kelly Hudlow. This is a podcast of sermons and musings all about the Christian faith and especially about being an Episcopalian. This is a sermon preached on the last Sunday after the Epiphany, February 14, 2021, at St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Greensboro, Alabama. The principal text for the sermon is Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 9, the Transfiguration speak in the name of one god father son and holy spirit amen Amen. when i was in college one of the requirements was that you had to take a fine arts class even if you weren't like an arts person it's the benefit of a well-rounded liberal arts education, you had to learn about things that you wouldn't necessarily need for your career, and fine arts was one of them, and so I decided that I was going to take a class, an introductory class, on photography. Um, It was a simple course, the basic introduction to black and white film photography. This was before every camera was digital, and we walked around with these ridiculously powerful cameras on our phones. This was good old-fashioned shutter-clicking film photography. And so one of the first things that we learned was you had to learn how a camera worked. And what was surprising is that cameras are actually really very simple things, right? It's just a device that focuses light for a particular period of time. And so all you have to do is understand the relationship between the aperture, which is how big the hole is that the camera's going to let the light through, the shutter speed, so how long you're going to open the shutter, and the sensitivity of whatever you're exposing that light to, so the film speed in this case. I learned that when you got past all of the fancy dials and the different settings, that that was it. That's all it came down to was how big was the opening, how long did you keep it open, and how sensitive was the thing that you were shining the light on. So once we learned the basics, we were then sent out into the world, right? released upon the world, was not professional photographers but college students to go take pictures and document everyday life. And our instructor did the best that he could to try to to get us to take interesting photos. So to pay attention on how lines of, of buildings or landscape maybe came together, where to put somebody in a photo to make it more interesting. But in the case of black and white photography, particularly to pay attention to how light and shadow was in the scene. Right? Because with black and white photography, color is not as important as contrast and shadow and light is. Since this was the pre-digital age, we would go out and spend hours taking photos, trying to compose masterpieces, but we wouldn't know what we actually had until we got into the dark room to process and print the photos that we had taken. Processing film is also pretty simple. It's all about chemistry, timing, and temperature, and has to be done in complete darkness. Once the film is processed, you can look at the negatives and you get an idea of what the picture is that you've maybe taken, but not a real understanding of what is there because everything is reversed and is, you know, tiny when you're talking about 35 millimeter film. It's not until you go into the dark room, right? You've seen this probably on movies, maybe. Some of you are, are, you know, some of you are old enough to know what a dark room is, and some of you are young enough to maybe to have watched an old enough movie where you see this scene when the photographer goes in, and there's the red light, and there's all these trays of, of liquid chemicals and water, and you put the, the film negative in the enlarger, and you turn the light on and zap the paper, and then you have to carry it over and move it through these baths of chemicals and there's this great moment when when you put the print into the developer even though you're supposed to put it like the face down it's not so much fun because then you just see white paper but there's this moment when you put the print into the developer if you put it face up all of a sudden the image appears what you had not been able to see up until that point is finally there Now you have to stay patient because you still got like two or three more baths of things it has to go to and it's got to dry before you can drag it out into the light and see what work of art, or in my case, most likely sort of mediocre snapshot of a cityscape you had managed to capture two or three days before when you were out shooting. It's that moment of just sort of magical wonder of watching an image appear from nothing is something that i think about every time i hear the stories of these theophanies that's a five dollar bible word for these revelations of god right we have one of those today we call it the transfiguration it's the second theophany that we get in the gospel of mark the first is at jesus's baptism theophanies are the making concrete the presence of god in the human world, it's revealing that in our human sort of mundane life, there is a divine reality in existence. In the Gospel of Mark, the first theophany at Jesus' baptism includes very similar words that we hear today. After the heavens were torn apart and the Spirit descends, we hear a voice say, You, referencing Jesus, you are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus' status as beloved is confirmed in this theophany today, this transfiguration, when a voice comes from the cloud again and says, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. That listen to him sort of draws me up short and I think it's helpful to remember at least some of the high points of what has happened between Jesus' baptism when this miraculous revelation of divine reality occurs at the Jordan and where we, what happens between then and where we end up on the mountain in today's reading. We've heard several of these stories all throughout the season of Epiphany. Jesus has gone out into the wilderness. We're going to hear that again when we begin Lent. He has popped up in Galilee and begun a ministry of preaching and teaching, healing, exercising demons. He's called his disciples. He's taught in parables. He feeds the crowds. He walks on water. After all of these miraculous things, finally we get to the pinnacle point where Peter has proclaimed that Jesus is clearly the Messiah It seems like, absent the voice and the cloud and the mountain, the reality, the divine reality, has been revealed. But immediately following Peter's declaration of faith, Jesus, for the first time in Mark, explains that he must suffer and die and then rise again. And the faithful Peter does not like that. He takes Jesus to the side and says, you really can't go around saying that. And Jesus rebukes Peter very harshly by saying, get behind me, Satan. That is the scene that immediately precedes our reading today. Our reading today takes place six days later. We don't know what happens in that six days, though I imagine it was not a comfortable time to be a disciple of Jesus after this skirmish between he and Peter. And Jesus takes James and John, some of the first disciples, and Peter, who he has rebuked and called Satan for his lack of understanding of what he has said, up to this mountain to witness the divine reality, this theophany, this Jesus' transfiguration, and the dazzling white clothing, and the marks of all the divine to maybe finally have the disciples listen to what he has been saying the whole time now we oftentimes talk about the transfiguration we make a shorthand of this scene because we have moses and we have elijah so it's very easy to say well this teaches us that jesus is the fulfillment of the law which is moses and of the prophets which is elijah and there's certainly value in teaching it that way But when we keep it so shorthand, I think we miss and oversimplify what's going on in this miraculous event. We have to stop and think about who Moses is, right? Moses met God face to face, or at least face to backside, and was transfigured by his encounter with God. He comes down from the mountain with his face glowing and has to wear a veil over his face. He was a prophet, not only a prophet, but he was the model of what all Israel's prophets were to be. He was the saving prophet of Israel that led them from slavery to freedom. He was the prophet that delivered the law from God that established their relationship with God and each other. Elijah is the greatest of the prophets that were to come after Moses. He too encounters God on a mountain in the still small voice. He is the saving prophet of Israel that called the people away from the worship of Baal to the return to the relationship and worship of the one true God. And we hear in the reading from Second Kings today that Elijah, after parting the waters of the Jordan River, after going back to the wilderness, is ascended into heaven in a whirlwind. And as the prophet Malachi would say later on, Elijah would be the one that returned to mark the day of the Lord. So in this transfiguration, we know that the day of the Lord has arrived. Here we have Elijah. We know in the pronouncement of Jesus as beloved yet again, we see the reality that Jesus' relationship with God, his closeness, is even more than what Moses and Elijah experienced. Jesus will be the Savior, the one that for once and for all restores a pathway to relationship with God and with each other, but he does so building on the ministry and covenant of those that came before him. Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of the law, but not the sort of law that we typically understand that's sort of a harsh disciplinarian. He is the fulfillment of the law which establishes relationship with God and with each other. He's also the fulfillment of the prophets, not what we necessarily think about a prophet who is some sort of outsider that just comes in and stirs things up, but the sort of prophet that comes from amongst the people to speak truth and love to them, to invite them into a fuller relationship with God. Jesus' choice to bring the disciples up this mountain means that this is a moment that they and we are supposed to take something away from. Peter's response to build dwellings and stay there isn't the lesson that we're supposed to learn. We're supposed to learn that these theophanies, these glimpses, are fleeting. They are glimpses of a divine reality not to be lingered in or stay in, but to be carried forward as fuel for the continued journey. I think this moment was also for Jesus. Mark doesn't tell us what Elijah and Moses said to Jesus, but he does tell us that they were talking. And I would imagine that what they said were words of love and encouragement, because after all, these two prophets would come the closest to understand what Jesus is going through. The disappointment of disciples and the world not listening to the message being given or seeing the truth. If we remember back to the story of Moses, he didn't make it to the promised land. And most of that first generation that left Egypt died in the wilderness. Elijah would have momentary momentary successes, calling people back to God, but then they would fall away again. And both of them would end their ministries, hoping that their successors, Joshua in the case of Moses and Elisha in the case of Elijah, would take on the mantle that was left to them. We get this snapshot of Jesus' glory as we begin to prepare for the season of Lent. A season where we're called on through prayer and fasting and spiritual discipline to get ready to follow Jesus to the cross and to celebrate the empty tomb. I think most of us may feel like we've been living in Lent since 2020, since it's just about a year ago, give or take a few weeks, where our churches suspended worship and where we entered this season of pandemic. And so I think we should hold on to, for just a moment, this snapshot, this photo of the divine reality that we get in Mark's gospel, this recording of the transfiguration, and to shine the light of this moment into our present world. In the light of the transfiguration, in the truth that God holds in the beloved of Jesus Christ, we can look at what has happened in our country and communities over the past year, the disruption, the unrest, the uncertainty, and see the reality that God is at work in the world and is challenging us to realize that our communities together are more fragile than we may be thought and take a little bit more work to keep together than what we had perhaps considered that in light of the love that we see through the transfiguration, that all of this stuff that we're having to do related to the pandemic, the mass, the social distancing, the canceled plans, the ended trips, the online learning, the vaccinations, all of this we do because we are committed to life and love of each other together, not just as individuals. In this snapshot of the transfiguration, in the light that is captured and somehow emanates from this story, we see the truth of not just Jesus's belovedness, but of our own. And that all that we are now called to do in this moment, in this moment of pandemic, in this moment of disruption, in this moment of uncertainty, what we are called to do now is to continue in Christ reconciling love for the world that was revealed on that mountain so long ago. Amen.